Good times. Good to see everybody. Great to have you here. And let's just pray the 2011 MacBook Air continues on. Are you with me? Any? Oh man, it's been an interesting week. Good. Um, hey, we're going to jump right in. I know many of you are visiting. Just so thankful you're here with us. We're a community that gathers here on Sundays throughout uh, the year. And on the first Sunday of the month, we take time actually to not meet here, but be in communities, kind of smaller house communities across the city. And so super thankful you're here. And last week, we kind of began a teaching theme and a, a series that's going to evolve over the next five or six weeks called Domestic Monastery. Uh, what we're trying to do is kind of paint this picture for us as a community, and it's not just for parents. It's not a parenting series. What we're really trying to drill down on, because we've been a community that has focused a lot on the practices over the last several years that we do together, there has been, there has been a kind of a desire, almost like an eye-opening to the reality of how important not just these practices are together, but how important our homes are. So there's this Catholic writer, his name's Ronald Ruhlheiser, wrote a little book called Domestic Monastery, and in it he's really trying to communicate how domestic life is important. And as I read it, I thought, you know, that's maybe not necessarily our, our bent completely in the way he was going with his work in that book. I've just really been sensing that there are several practices we would like to see embody in our homes. That COVID has really exposed some stuff, especially being now in the mental health kind of world and profession, um, seeing obviously what COVID has done. Um, we want to gear in on how we can cultivate and create beautiful practices within our home. And it ties right into even this morning, the, the reality that we're not perfect. We don't have it all cased out. But one of the things we want to do is create spaces in our homes for Jesus. And that becoming more like Jesus doesn't just happen overnight. It takes time and energy, and it really takes intentionality in the practices within our home. And this is happening. It's beautiful to see, but also want to kind of look at really four particular things I think are important as we kind of move forward. Last week, if you didn't, if weren't here, maybe you want to listen back, because in, in that, you want to listen back. You really want to listen back. That's what you want to do. It sounds terrible. I hate that when pastor people say that stuff. But at the beginning... We gave some resources that kind of are guiding us. Uh, Tish Warren is an Anglican priest. She's got a great work on kind of everyday ordinary liturgies. Uh, Rick Veloda's in there. There's a book for more parents. Uh, I forget the name of it. It's, we'll, we'll blast it out at some point. Um, just helping with like creating practices within our homes. And then another thing that we're doing and kind of launching this week is we are having a parenting component. This is not a parenting series, okay? This is for everybody. When we use the term household or family, we're talking about every. Couples, family, like a couple, sorry, couples with kids. Um, you're in college and you have roommates. We really just want to kind of take this to the, our houses. So the vision is bigger than this, but we are going to offer an online course from Intentional Parents called the Intentional Film Series. It's by Diane and Phil Comer um, from the States, and they do a great job just unpacking some ways in which we can raise our kids in the way of Jesus. And so that is going to be free and available to you. Uh, that will get blasted out this week. There's nine sessions. You can do it on your own time and space. If you want somebody to dialogue around this, we're not far. Heather and I aren't far. If you want to, like, just wrestle through it, um, it will be really helpful. So this is like a supplement to kind of what we're doing, okay? So you can, you'll get a kind of link for that if you're part of things. Just um, if you're not a part of Praxis Weekly, it'll go out in that. Sound good? Sound all right? 
So we teed it up last week, kind of an introduction, that in the history and story of Israel, one of the things they were called to do was to pass this on. The great Shema is a picture of that, where Israel was called when they walked the path, when they rose from their beds, when they ate together, when they went out on the doorposts, door they would kind of, kind of continually remind themselves of this great call to hear, to listen, Israel, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and strength. Now what we want to do is get a little practical, I hate that word, but I think it's helpful to guide us in more nuts and bolts practices that we can be doing now in our homes. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about scripture. Today, that's today. We'll talk about scripture quickly. We're going to talk about prayer, the rhythm of prayer. So fixed hour prayer and the Lord's prayer is a template. We're going to talk about hospitality in our homes and eating meals. And that's actually a way to create space for the kingdom. And then four weeks from today, we're going to talk about blessing, words of life actually being a practice within our homes, something we should be intentional about uh, with each other uh, in our households. Scripture. Here's the deal. I think it was 2017, we did a series called The Book of Strange New Things. It was 10 weeks long, and we unpacked the Bible. And in that 10-week series, we barely scratched the surface of what the Bible is, how to read it, and so forth. I have, my computer is telling me 18 minutes with y'all, right, to unpack the reality of how we can embody scripture within our homes. So this one may take an extra kind of midweek, mic in the face type of pod to kind of develop this more. Um, and we'll also probably help release that again just because when we talk about the Bible, there, there are all sorts of questions, <laughs> right? Like mountains of questions of like many of us put our lives on this thing and do we truly even know what it is? Like the Bible itself in our culture has very much become almost in a sense a divisive thing, a, a block, a roadblock for a lot of people. And we pick it up and a lot of us understand it to be authoritative and that's beautiful and we'll talk about that absolutely. But a lot of times we don't fully know what we're dealing with. And so I'm going to try and help set the stage for that, but also know that, you know, 18, 20 minutes is going to be pretty inadequate. We're going to push more towards how we can see this kind of happen in our home. Recent study showed one in seven Canadians, Canadian Christians, or 14%, there's no judgment here, read the Bible at least once a week. The majority of Canadians, including those who identify themselves as Christians, responded in the same study saying that they read the Bible either seldom or never. Uh, the same study went on to say weekly Bible reading in Canada has fallen by half since 1996, so just around 30 years People just don't engage in this anymore. Let's be honest. We got the iPhone, right? The bills play at 1 o'clock. Anybody with me? Do they play at 1 o'clock? I don't even know if they play at 1 o'clock. That's how excited I am, you know? Like, we got stuff. I'm going to be at a rink a lot today, right? There's our lives. And then we have this thing, the scripture. Again, fundamentally, for those of us especially that have been around the church for a while, we know that this is important, but there's a lot less engagement around the scriptures, if you have a Bible, Exodus 24, I'm going to read this quick again just because of time, but if you know the story of Israel, and this is important for us to drill into a little bit, God gives Israel the law at Sinai after they come out of slavery. Read the story in Exodus, and it's a good thing. Despite kind of what we think in our moment, this law was helping guide and put a boundary around them in, very, in a very hostile moment. And 
Yahweh's vision, God's vision, is that Israel would be a community that would be priests, like bridge builders to the world around them. And the word that's actually used between God and his people is this word covenant. Just like at a wedding, you kind of declare this, this love and enter into this covenant. What do you do? By the state of Ontario, not the state of Ontario, by the province of Ontario invested in me, what do you do? You take a pen and you sign into this covenant. A lot of us, don't, you know, we don't really think about the weight of signatures, but on that day, or if you go to the courthouse before the big party or whatever, you sign into this covenant that there's, there's things you're actually giving your life to, and a signature is a way to kind of solidify that commitment and covenant together. And this is actually how God, crazy enough, in a sense, solidifies this covenant with Israel. Exodus 24, verse 4. He got up early the next morning and built an altar, Moses did, at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord, as you do. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in bulls and the other half he splashed against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and he read it aloud to people, and they responded. The people responded, Israel did. We will do everything the Lord has said. We'll do everything. We will obey. Now, the inner chuckle is, how did that go for them? You ever read the story? Just, I hate to be a spoiler. It didn't go very well at times. But this was a covenant. God was inviting his people in to live different, to be this contrast community. And one of the things amongst all that I would love to say today about the scriptures and about the Bible, because I am geeked up on this and many of you know and are rolling your eyes, I won't look up. I'll let you roll your eyes. This, this thing is so important, but one of the things we fail to grasp at times is that the Bible is actually a storytelling document. It is a covenant document. One of the things we need to take two seconds and do is obliterate the idea, and it's often called, we call it here, and I think it's Tim Mackey from the Bible College, but Bible Project, sorry, calls it the golden tablets view of the Bible. You know, for many of us, we have not done the work in our minds right now to even know how this thing got in your hands, for some of you paper people, but for most of us, the contents that are on our phone. We don't even know, this isn't judgment, how it got there. So we kind of play this game where it's like, it just came and it's like golden tablets. And then you realize that there's all sorts of literature and genre and God spoke through some people. And here's the thing, God spoke through some really bad people that have writings in the Bible. It was born out of history. You know, most of us have a view oftentimes that isn't rooted in, in history and it's kind of like people think that the golden tablets kind of just walk down Mount Sinai or something on its own, right? And that's just not true. There's human hands all over the Bible. It's not, the Bible is not threatened by history. It came out of history. You're like, man, okay, where are we going? I don't have any more I can say in this moment to talk about that kind of bent, but we'll talk about it more and give you some resources if you'd like. But it's important to understand that this is not like walking down from Mount Sinai on its own. Human hands are all over it. And so one of the things, this is just rewinding to 2017. This is the definition we've used. Again, shaped by Tim Mackey and some other philosophers. The Bible is a library of writings, one beautiful way of looking at it, written by humans, inspired by the Spirit, and what it's trying to do is reveal to us the story of God's work in the world. 
God's kingdom at hand and God's incarnation, Jesus, as humanity's true king. It's this lie. One person put it well. I forget who it was. I think it was Tim Mackey who said, we don't read it literally as much as we read it literarily. We read it in context, in the genre. We have all sorts of stuff going in there. And even think back to Jonah in the summer. When we went through Jonah, we tried to approach it in its proper context and what was going on. How we doing? You okay? All right. So that's kind of the definition sometimes we roll with. Now here's the thing. In the first century, this is what illuminated my mind. In antiquity, like ancient times, and in first century societies, here's something you need to know, because this will help us in how we shape how we read the Bible. In the first century especially, and, and prior to that, societies were predominantly uneducated. They weren't educated like we are. And they were oral dominant. Now you're like, dude, I'm, I'm here for a baby dedication. What are we talking about? Why does this matter? It matters because when you wind back, the ancient world was consistently hearing dominant rather than text dominant, okay? This is gonna blow some of your minds because as great old evangelicals, we are very text dominant. It's about the Bible, the Holy Bible we got in our hands in, in our phones. And that's wonderful, but just to remind you, it was oral in, which, in the ways in which they passed it on. The general population didn't, I know this is mind-blowing, didn't own documents, had little access to documents, and would be largely incapable for most people of reading the documents, right, throughout antiquity. One scholar said reading and writing were restricted to a professional elite. The majority of the population was not literate. The other thing we've got to remember is like the book, the book, was an invention, like bringing a book together, was an invention that wasn't created until the Greek era. Now, why does this matter? It matters because for centuries, for years and years and years, it was spoken, the holy text was, before it was compiled together. Even the first century church, I, you know, I'm all for daily devotions and all of that, and this, I think, ties to what we want to talk about. I'm all for that, but you have to remember the early churchgoers in first century churches that Paul would deal with, they did not have Bibles in their hands. They couldn't open up the Bible and like get the coffee going in the morning and take the Instagram photo. You know what I'm saying? They just, they didn't have this availed to them. They had to literally go to a house church and open up at times the scrolls and letters from brother Paul to have this scripture over them. Now, that's not to say don't read the Bible every day. I'm for that. We'll get to that in a second. But it, it, uh, John Walton puts it best. He says, we in modern society think in terms of written literature. At the time of the New Testament, oral literature was common. We read books. They listen to literary performances. We read the news or watch it on television. They received the news orally. This is why the gospel was so big. It's because they weren't reading it as much as somebody would come on a horse when Caesar would dominate or take over a place and they would proclaim the good news, Caesar's euangelion to the people around them. Make sense? How we doing? Hanging in there? Now, this is important because we've become very text-dominant and that's fine, but I, I've, I've just re-engaged re this in seminary and just my mind and heart was going... And I just wonder, you know, we create a sense of scripture memory, which again, I am all for. Your kids are learning scripture right now. But I wonder if the best way to approach the scriptures is to read it, obviously, but is to be continually telling it. 
That's how it takes root as we practice it. So I'm all for, hey, if you want to like open up the Bible, Romans 6, you know, 18 or whatever, fine, that's great. But I wonder if more importantly for us, especially in a post-Christian world where this is being less and less engaged, it's important for us to approach it like they did almost in ancient times where we read aloud and we tell the story of Scripture. So I'm all for reading it. Can you nod your head at that? You don't, go, don't go tell whoever Drew says don't read the Bible. That is not what I'm saying, okay? But could we go deeper than that as practices? So here's four. I'm going to give you some nuts and bolts. Uh, I said last week I am doing this series um, because I feel like it's for me more than anybody. I don't know if there's rules around that, but I really feel like these four practices are for me. And I work a job now, too, so things are busy, and it's like, I need some of this instead of the pastor guy at the front just downloading all his wisdom on you to do stuff. I feel like this is partly for me as well, very much so. Here's a few things that I've learned along the way. One, read the scriptures. You're like, what, we pay this guy? I know, I'm sorry, but just (laughs) read it. Here's what I encourage everybody to do. Read it just once in your lifetime through the Bible right? I would encourage, now some people are into like the, the daily, you read through it every single year. There's no like moral code that that makes you a better Christian. That's fine. If you want to do that, that's great. But I do encourage, especially in our moment of doubt and deconstruction, which I am all for. We've talked a lot about doubt and deconstruction, but I find that very few people actually read through it cover to cover. And that's not to say just because those of us that have read through the Bible cover to cover have more authority. I'm not saying that. I think there's people that are crazy that have read the Bible cover to cover. We've got to be careful of their ideas. But at the same time, sometimes we want to talk about things we haven't actually read or engaged. There's tons of deconstruction, but I would just encourage people at least once in your life to read through the scriptures. There's a guy in our community, wonderful, wonderful guy, who's reading through right now, using the Bible Project's material. He comes up often and speaks to me. And I just the joy of seeing somebody wrestle through the library of scripture individually. It's really, it just geeks me up because there's so much to be learned and to wrestle through, and it's wonderful. So I would encourage us as a practice to read through the scriptures. But here's what I'd also encourage, too. I would encourage us to read the story in your home regularly. And that may be different than a linear Genesis to Revelation read through the Bible. I think there's actually ways we can saturate ourselves in the scripture that are very practical ways in our homes to continue to tell the story. Um, I hate to break it, parents, I got your kids dedicated this morning. The gift we give you is the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, and it's wonderful. And it takes the key themes and the key stories all the way through the scriptures. Legitimately, if you took the writing off the kiddish kind of animation or the, the pictures of it, it's something, even if you didn't have kids, you could read over yourselves as getting the story of God into you. I really believe it. Um... Maybe less about chapter and verse, but more grappling with the the stories at hand. And so for some of you, the Jesus storybook is actually a great place to start in reading it and getting that into you. The message version, I know there's lots of controversy. 
I call him a huge, huge, huge influence on my life. Eugene Peterson wrote a, a very readable um, version of the scriptures that can be helpful. Some of you know the Tim Shell translation. I think it's Bonnie Lewis. Some of you know Bonnie Lewis. She did uh, more of an idiomatic Bible translation where she kind of filled in some of the context in the layers, and it comes in book forms. Book form, it takes 20 or 25 of the major stories of scripture, and you read it, and you ingest it, and it is leading kind of the biblical story. And so there's different ways of getting the story into us. Um, and I think we got to look at different ways in which we can do that, where the story is actually cultivated and read in our homes regularly. Does that make sense? So read through the Bible. I encourage everybody to read through the scriptures. Do it. Get on a plan if that's great. But even more so, I think it's important for us to really know in depth the story and to continue to tell these things over and over. Know the context, but embody it within the family. Three, how we, I never have points. Aren't you, is your mind blown? I grew up in a church where there's three points every week. I got four, so I'm like total rebel, but it's all good. Three, for those of you that are parents, I think we need to think through how we're going to do this for our kids. I would encourage um, parents, and so this is one thing that I am learning and growing in and failing in at the same time, I would encourage you to take your kids at some point through the scripture. There's this picture in 1 Corinthians 14, and it's not about women not being able to teach and preach in the, in, in the churches, in the early churches. Paul says women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak. So a lot of people are like, well, women shouldn't preach or teach. That's actually not what it's saying. It's talking about in the public gathering, there was lots of discourse while somebody was trying to read or communicate. And so people were shouting back and forth. And Paul, in context, is like, just, you should be quiet. Now, it's interesting. You're like, well, what does this have to do with reading the Bible? Verse 35, if they want to inquire about something... Paul says they should ask their own husbands if they have questions at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Again, it's not preaching and teaching. That is like disrupting the gathering, which I think we're kind of into. We don't, you know, we want some order. Now, what does this have to do with anything? It has a, a lot to do with a lot because what is Paul presuming? That in the home, like in this case, the husbands know what's going on. And if we relate that to here, I love teaching, preaching, leading this community. I love you all. But parents, I don't want this to be a burden, but I do want us to awaken to this. It's really up to you to lead your kids through this. It's up to you. Um, so I would just encourage, on my third point, at some point when they're to an age of kind of comprehension, I would really encourage you, not in a burdensome way, but find creative ways to take your kids to the Scripture. So I have, I have started this, we're doing okay and then failing at times. Started with Ava in grade six, we're not through yet. The plan was to be done by the end of grade eight and then go on a trip. We went on a trip anyways, <laughs> even though we didn't. That's like total millennial like uh, reward before actually finishing what we're supposed to do. But, and the plan is, listen, I, I cringe a little because I'm not trying to say this, we're great, but I... In the world that my kids grow up in, the deconstructive world my kids grow up in, so much around them, I don't think my kids have to have an existential crisis. I don't. Let's talk about war and a God at war in the Old Testament. What is this? Like, have you read through Leviticus? Like, you just open up this stuff. Trust me, if you lead your kids through this, there will be questions, right? And um, what about this? And what does this mean? And 
trying to give the larger picture. We use the Bible Project stuff for video primers. There's just a way to, I think, creatively take them through and give them incentive at the end. And the plan is to do this with all our kids. It's not perfect. We've hit road, bumps in the road. We are busy, but I, my hope is, is that in early high school, they could have at least read it through once and my life as an invitation to them is, I'm not going to force something on you. I just want you to experience this with me, the love of God that we find in the scriptures, the grand narrative of the scriptures, and you do with it what you want. I'm not going to slam stuff down your throat. I'm not going to try and force you into something. Um, and we're not perfect, but that has actually been a really beautiful thing. And for most of us that have had our, our, our crisis, because it, what is it like, if it's in the Bible, if it means it, it means that there was no thought around like literary stuff and context and all of that. It's hurt us in a sense. I'm not saying my kids aren't going to have an existential crisis. I'm their father, so they may, they may have a crisis here or there, you know. But I often think I want to create a space for them where there's less resistance and they can actually grow in this. And I know it takes time, and I understand, listen, I understand our prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop until we're in our 20s, and there's, that's a real thing. But I would just encourage parents, just as Paul says, hey, like, take it home and work it out. I would, I'm not Paul, but I just say, we need to maybe take this home and work it out amongst each other a little too. Take on the role. Make it fun. We did a trip with Ava. Um, that, there was other things involved with that. But just, is there something that we could lead them through to say, hey, we're journeying with you? And there's so much resource out there. The Bible Project, other places that give uh, opportunity for actually fun, integrative learning where it's, it's more than just, you need to believe this. If you look at the Hebrew people, they were just immersed in it. And the story was told over and over. You with me? Read the scriptures. Read the story in your home regularly. If you have kids, I'd encourage you to take them through this as a practice. And then four is this, just this, is tell the story. And that's partly learning the story. Many of you guys know the great N.T. Wright has really shaped me. I was actually playing church softball once, and somebody, when I was up to bat, said, do it for N.T. Wright, as I was up to bat. They wanted, and I crushed a home run, so it was just like, shows you how much I didn't actually crush a home run. Do it for N.T. Wright. Who says that? Anyways, you know that we've been brought into this kind of picture of understanding the grand narrative. Throw it up, Kev, if you can. Here's what I would encourage you. Read through the Bible. Yes, do it. Wonderful. But I hope, you know, for people within our own context, our own community, you could tell the story from bookend to bookend. And you could tell it over and over. If you have kids... You just tell it over and over, the chapters, the five chapters of the grand story. Again, I know a lot of people that are dialed in. They know scripture and verse, but they could not tell you this. And this is important. God created the world. And in it, before there was chauvinism and brokenness and, and racism and, and hatred and death and all that we see in our moment, God created male and female good, in partnership together. The word uh, ezer is actually that they would be this support. They would be this support to each other, fully in relationship with God, walking in the cool of the day. They were naked and unashamed. Are you with me? This is the story and where it starts. This is the ideal. So a lot of times when we talk in our moment about some of even our cultural issues, I always want to go back to Eden. What did Eden look like? This place of shalom, this place of peace and rest and joy and humans in relationship with God and each other. 
It lasts two pages to the fall, again, telling the story that there is a sense of brokenness. There is something bent and broken, as C.S. Lewis would say. There's something off. One of the questions we pose around here is, how's things going for us? Well, it's pretty awesome this morning to see your smiling faces, to dedicate kids, to be together. But there's also injustice. There's war. There's pain. The sex trade happening right around us in our own city. Sometimes we close our eyes to homelessness like we've ever seen it. All sorts of things in the four corners of our city that are happening and in our lives. We are fallen and broken. And it's something we actually have to wrestle with. This isn't just like me spewing evangelical stuff. This is like deep philosophical from the scripture stuff we got to wrestle with. We live in a broken world. Jesus, after Israel trying to be this family that lives it out, Jesus the Messiah comes and he comes with salvation, the full gospel, not just salvation as the gospel, but him preceding with the Father all the way to him reigning as king in the end. Jesus comes and shows us what it's like. The Sermon on the Mount is a beautiful picture of this where he really brings his antithesis, his antithesis to even what we read in the Old Testament, giving a new way, a new vision of life, and that salvation and life would be through him. He dies, he's buried, he, he dies, he's buried, he raises again, and he appears to his disciples, and it's so funny, as part of the story, oftentimes we leave out the church. Jesus left his followers with this idea that the ecclesia, the gathering of God, would be this thing that would embody the way of Jesus. These people together, living together, doing life together, that part of the story is the church. Again, we push back a little bit, and I know I'm accused of this, kind of having a high view of the church, a high ecclesiology, I get it. Some people don't get it, I know. But I just look at this, and I go, the letters in the New Testament were written to churches and communities. This, this people coming together, and then new creation, that God is going to come and renew all things. And if anything we could leave, if you have kids, anything we could leave our kids with is just new creation talk all the time. In their pain, in their suffering, in the mental health crisis, I get all of those things are realities right here and right now for us. But over and over what I'm trying to do, and I'm not perfect, what I'm trying to do is point our kids to the reality that we are not flying away somewhere, but new creation is coming here. Heaven and earth are coming back together just like in the beginning at creation. Heaven and earth were God's first temple and it's been torn apart. Heaven and earth in the end are coming back together and new creation is coming. And if anything I think our kids need is certainly they need some scripture and verse. I get it. They're getting that right now. I'm not against that. But really, our homes, our households, what we need is the ability to cultivate this kind of talk, this kind of gospeling, this kind of story within our homes. They'll pick it up. If you have kids, they will pick it up. And one of the things for my own you know, kids as I think about them is I want them longing for new creation. That everything they see right here is not all that there is. There is something better than what they're seeing and experiencing. And though we try and create as best environments as we can, there is a day where Jesus will come and set up shop like the Sandlot will always remind us, forever, forever, right? This is why I'm a Christian. This is why I follow Jesus. I, certainly there's been things that have been handed to me. I'm thankful for my family. Mom and dad, if you're out there, I know you don't listen, so it doesn't matter. But you know what I'm saying. I'm super, super thankful for that. But as we think about the world we inhabit, a post-Christian post uh, kind of COVID, hopefully, world, we need this. We need to be able to tell this and speak this. So again, my four points, brothers and sisters, read the scriptures, just do it. 
Read the story. Cultivate the story in your home. If you have children, take them through the scriptures at some point. Get a plan together. Tell the story. And my hope is, is that there'll be lots of wrestling and lots of pain in the painful moments and the painful parts of scripture where you look and you go, this is, this is hard. There's hard, things that are hard in the scriptures. But we would wrestle through it and create space for the next generation of people coming to know that God is good. His love is dripping on the pages of this thing. And yes, there's accommodation. And yes, there's things that are not ideal. But everything points to a new heaven and a new earth. You out there? You with me?